Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 1 to 6, as well as 12 to 23. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for who we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, and he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are not of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who came, uh, first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. This is God's word. All right. When I say the word um, history, okay, some of you are like, yay, very exciting. Other people, it's like, oh, there's a groan. And then some of you are like, meh. So on the count of three, I'm going to say it, and you do your thing, okay, out loud. If you're like, yeah, you can clap. You're like, groan, groan loud so the clappers don't out-clap you. And if you're, meh, you just throw up your hands. Ready? One, two, three. <laughs> Off. All right, well, this is, this is, I'm surprised because actually, um, <laughs> history is one of those funny words. Um, it, it has an association with it of things that are old. Uh, or things that are in the past, um, things that um, really maybe there, therefore have less relevance today. Um, some of you, history was a subject in school that you, you loved. Others of you, like me, it was like, I didn't realize I liked history until I realized there was something other than Canadian history. Now, I know that makes me a bad Canadian, but I just found Canadian history. But <clears throat> it's one of those things. And, and, and even for history buffs, um, we, we sort of think about it as, okay, the study of the past. Now, we can, we can appreciate history and things that happened in the past if we can understand, okay, how they impacted us today. So one of the shows our family has gotten recently into on Netflix is How We Got to Now. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's basically, it's like the history of science and like certain uh, technologies and innovation and how things developed to get to where we are today. And it's fascinating, actually, to see how one thing led to another. 
And you turn off a show like that and think, hmm, that's, that's interesting. Now, in, in my family, like, we're really glad that somebody invented basketball. It was apparently a Canadian guy, right? Um, and, but, but really, it's like, I'm glad that happened. Now move on, right? So that's, if we can appreciate history, we might think, now, some of the true historians in the room are like, no, you have no idea how everything that we are today is shaped by the threads of the things that have happened for better or for worse. And if it was, if it was worse, we're kind of like, okay, we feel bad about it. And if it was great, we're like, great, I'm glad that happened, and we move on. Um, this is a bit of a problem for us when it comes to our faith, because for actually every faith, every religion, no matter what your background is, is grounded in history. And certainly uh, as Christians um, who read from, this is not an ancient text, but who read from an ancient text, right, that is grounded in history, our view of history, how we think about it, um, can really affect our faith. And, and in many ways, um, some of you grew up in traditions of faith that practiced things, and maybe when you ask the question, as a child or even, you know, as someone older, why do we do this? The answer either directly or implied was, well, we've just always done it. This, this is what we do. This is what it means to be X, you know, whatever that is, because that's history, that's tradition. And the problem is uh, that we can come to adopt, like some of us therefore have rejected, in a sense, faith because we saw it being tradition. And it was sort of wrapped in history and what was old and, and the paintings are old and the music is old and everything is old. So that has no relevance for me today. And so we moved on from it. But others of us, in a sense perhaps equally dangerous, have just adopted things because that's what, what, what always was. And we've sort of picked up the tradition, and maybe it makes us feel good, or maybe it makes us feel somehow like we're doing the right thing for ourselves, or if we have kids, for them, or it's just kind of this sense of, well, I'm, I'm connected to my past, or this is meaningful for me, so I don't want to let go of it. But it still really is very much a tradition, something that we repeat, something that really is anchored in the past. And maybe it's the category of, glad it happened, now I'm moving on. And there were, so we're doing this series right now called Beyond Just Belief because we're saying actually what we really believe changes everything. That if we say we believe certain things, that that actually is going to have an inevitable effect on how we live. And I, and I said to you sort of that actually nobody lives inconsistently with their beliefs. We all live what we really believe. And so as we've been exploring, sort of saying, okay, what does the Christian faith really kind of assert? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And whether or not we would declare today that we are or not. If I really believe this, if my heart really believed it, like not some things that I know happened or said, yes, I guess, but if my heart was really convinced that this was true, if my heart really believed, what kind of person would I really be? That the things we believe are actually meant to shape uh, who we are, and that they're not actually meant to be things that simply are living in the past, even though they happened in the past. We're talking this morning about really where the Christian faith comes to a head about the single most important event in human history. And I don't mean in church history or religious history. I mean in history. When I was writing my notes this week, I wrote it in caps, okay? The single most important event in human history. We're going to talk about it today. And it's also the single most important event in your story, in mine. 
that this is actually something not only that occurred, but when it occurred, it changed the trajectory of human life. My life, your life, such that the past history is crashing in on your life even today. And my hope and my prayer as, as I prepared this week and I prayed for you and I prayed for me and wrestled with this, say, God, help us grasp this. Kurt said this morning, or, uh, or somebody, about the God translating for us, right? His words. Um, through what I say, through what the scriptures, through what the scriptures have written, written, written down, the Apostle Paul from uh, 1 Corinthians, written about 55 CE. We're going to read that. We're, I'm praying, God, translate this into our hearts because I believe if we really understood this thing would be rescued in a sense from some sort of historical event and it would crash in on our lives and we would suddenly realize, actually, this is the most important event of my story. And I don't know whether I'm going to be able to convince you of it, but that's what I'm going to try to do this morning, is that you would realize, wow, this is actually way more significant than I thought. This has so much less to do with about religious history, and this is about history, and it's also about my story. And if I really believed it, what does that mean for me today? I hope you walk out of here going, that's my prayer. And the way that's going to happen is the Holy Spirit's going to do that in our lives. And we don't control that, but we're, we, that's, that's why I come here, <laughs> to, to have this happen to me. Uh, and I'm just trusting that that's going to happen, and maybe God's already been working on your heart this morning. And so we're going to read um, from this account. I'm going to do it in two parts, and so here's part one. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul, 55 CE, so about, you know, 20 years after Jesus died. Now, brothers and sisters, young church, new church, part of a letter, I want to remind you of the gospel, that's the word good news that we talk about, that I preach to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. And now he's talking about a gospel tradition. This is what they had started to circulate amongst the churches. Remember, oral tradition. Very, little, very few things were written down. These letters were like about 17% of the world was literate at that point. So most of it was past sort of oral tradition. And we say, oh, oral tradition, that's hearsay. It's like, no, it was in a non-written, non-printing press culture. That was how things were communicated. So Paul says, look, I'm going I'm to pass on to you what was passed on to me. Of first importance, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and we think he's probably sort of linking, remember all those Old Testament scriptures we knew? We realize now Christ's death was actually being prophesied for hundreds of years, coming up to that, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. This was also anticipated. And that he appeared to Cephas, which is actually Peter, the apostle Peter, and to the 12, so the 12 disciples. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. What's he mean, fallen asleep? Dead. We'll get to that in a moment. This is the good news, Paul says, that, that I am proclaiming to you that was passed on, that we are circulating, and this is what it means to be early Christians. That Jesus died and was buried. Probably every one of you has been to a funeral. And if you've been to the actual interment, when the casket is lowered into the ground, there is a sense of finality around that, right? It's that moment where you know, not only has life ended, but this body is being buried, and you know it's going to be covered in dirt and under the ground. There's a finality to burial, which is why Paul says, 
he, he died and he was buried. His death was kind of public. He wasn't just sort of dragged outside the city and stoned by a few crazies. Rome was involved. In fact, the procurator, uh, Pontius Pilate, of the, of the whole area was involved in sentencing into death. The Jewish leaders and priests in Jerusalem, the center of Jewish life and faith, they were there as well. It was very public. And so it was his burial. A rich man gave his tomb, got a burial, and, that, and, the, and the, the tomb was guarded because they were worried about what Paul said next. And on the third day, he was raised to life. This is what Christians affirm is, as Paul says, of first importance, the core of what we proclaim is the good news. Jesus died, he was buried, and on the third day raised to life. According to the scriptures, and he says, just as Jesus said, he would. And this is what we communicate. And this is what Christians believe. That Jesus Christ, human being, walked this earth in about 33 CE, was died, was killed, buried, and raised to life. The resurrection. The single most important event in human history. Now some of you, whether you would say you believe it or not, probably there, there's, there's, there's mental objections coming up in our minds because we're going, wait, what? And some of you are like, that's what you guys believe? Jesus Christ raised from the dead. A few things on that, just, just quickly. Um, and it was written, if you're following along in your journals this week, there was some writing about this. Like, how, how do we know this actually happened? Like, historical facts? That's what you're saying. Well, one thing we have to realize is this is not actually a study of science, right? Science studies what can be produced in a lab and repeated and poked and prod. History just studies what happened, even if it only happened once. So the resurrection of Jesus is not an exploration into scientific miracles. It's an exploration into history. Did this happen. We know Jesus was a man. It's well documented. His life, things he did, his death, and then a bunch of people after his death started to proclaim that he'd risen from the dead. Now, some people will say, well, this is legend. You know, like famous people, after they die, the stories get bigger and bigger. And that's true. And in fact, if you look at some of the things written about Jesus a few hundred years after he died, they started getting crazy. Like there's the Gospel of Thomas, what we call the Gnostic Gospel, where Jesus was flying around and all this kind of stuff. It got crazy. This stuff was written close to when he was alive. This is what Christians were proclaiming from the, from the very beginning. In fact, you could not be an apostle. The two requirements of the apostles, to be an apostle, to be one of the 12, and then Paul was later included in that, you had to have been an eyewitness to the resurrection because that's what the whole thing was about. You had seen Jesus with your own eyes, which is why he said he appeared to Peter, he appeared to the 12, and then 500 people. You had to have been an eyewitness. And so from the early, this is not legend that Christians didn't turn this into legends. It didn't become after hundreds of years of people talking about Jesus, he was a good man, and suddenly people started making up crazy stuff like, like Elvis or whatever, right? That this actually is what Christians affirmed from the beginning. And this letter was written... Again, about 20 years after Jesus died. So P Paul says, actually, some of, some of whom are still alive. In other words, the eyewitnesses were still alive and able to say this didn't happen or it did happen. There were eyewitnesses around. You couldn't just say this stuff. That's why legends happen hundreds of years later because everyone's dead. <laughs> nobody's there to refute it. So 
books have changed and all this stuff. This was early point, and this isn't even one of the earliest letters. The letters of Thessalonians is even earlier than 55 CE, and Paul again in that letter says Jesus Christ raised from the dead. So this is what Christians affirmed from the beginning. The question is, well, is it true? Like, how do we know it's true? Maybe the disciples stole the body, that's what people say. Um, You know, that they wanted to continue. They they so believed in Jesus, they wanted to continue the Jesus um, story, and and they were so um, destroyed that he had died, and they said, okay, we raise him to life. The problem is, resurrection was never in their minds as something that was going to be part of the story. The, the, The Jews had this expectation that Messiah would come but they never thought Messiah would die and rise from the dead. That wasn't part of the Messiah prophecy. It wasn't part of the Messiah story. And there were always groups of Jewish people who would follow these Messiahs, and they would follow them for a while, and then it would always end when they got killed. Rome would stand, they were, it was like a rebellion, and Rome didn't want it, and so they say, let's just kill the leader, we'll end this movement. And it happened every so there was no expectation. The disciples wouldn't have been thinking, oh, yeah, he's going to rise from the dead. They had no clue. In fact, they had totally abandoned him at his death. Just logically, if they couldn't even stand with him at his death, do you think they're going to go digging around in his tomb when Rome and the Jewish leaders said that this guy is over? When it was being guarded by a Roman guard, they, wanted not, they were done. They thought it was over. They thought this Messiah was, a, was that it had ended. They had such high hopes. And it had been crushed by Rome again. There was nothing in their minds that would say, we should raise this body from the dead. Not only that, if they stole the body, at least we seem to know about half of those apostles were killed for their faith in Jesus because they would not stop talking about Christ who had died and risen. Many people will die for a lie that they think is the truth. Nobody dies for a lie they know is At a certain point, when the sword's at your neck, you say, okay, I I stole the body. Psychologically, the disciples dying for their faith, having knowing that they had stolen the body and buried it somewhere and were saying Christ is risen, Christ, at some point you give it up, (laughs) the story. Not only that, psychologically you can't explain the change in them. They weren't, only John was around at the cross to see him die. Everybody else had left because they thought if they kill him, they're going to kill his followers too, so we are gone. How do you explain the fact that in a matter of 10 years, they went from not even being able to stand around him at his death to being willing to die for him? I think it was Peter who was crucified upside down for his faith, who wouldn't even stand with Jesus at the moment. What happened to make these men and many women start to say, and some people say, well, it was group hallucination. Well, people don't hallucinate as a group unless they're taking drugs together, and even then they don't see the same thing, so I've heard. Um, ex- I mean, unless it's, you know, Maple Leaf fans have the same hallucination every fall, but that's it, right? Other than that, other than that, there's no group hallucination. So this idea of Jesus appearing and appearing again in a broader and broader way. Not only that, it's like if you take, if you take the trajectory of the Christian faith in human history, this small, marginal group of people who were, listen, they were hiding in a room fearful, fearful for their lives. How is it possible that in 300 years they had taken over the Roman Empire to the point that Constantine said, this is a winner, I better back him? How is that possible? If you trace out human history like a timeline and you pluck the resurrection of Jesus out, none of this makes sense, right? You have to find something else to put in the timeline of history to say, how did this small marginal movement of scared people explode around the world, even though Judaism and Jerusalem was trying to crush it. Rome and the Roman Empire, the the most powerful empire that ever lived, 
was determined to stamp it out. Nero killing Christians, setting them on fire and lighting them uh, so that they would light the streets of the tor- uh, as torches when he rode his chariot down. How did this movement explode? And that 2.5 billion people around the world, you meet somebody today and you think, oh yeah, oh you're a Christian? Oh yeah, of course, it's commonplace. Really? What happened? If you take the resurrection out, you are not able to explain what happened after. And so just for a moment, we have to go, okay, there is significant evidence to look at this that every person in the world should say, okay, I actually need to look at this more. I maybe just move past it. Oh, there's no way Jesus could have risen from the dead. Wait a second. What does it mean for us? Like, if it's true that he has risen from the dead, why would it be the most significant event in human history? Because it validated everything Jesus said about himself. He said, I'm the bread of life. You know, like, whoever comes to me will be satisfied. Every one of us is looking for satisfaction. He said, I am the light of the world, and I have overcome the darkness. I am the one that gives ultimate illumination. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, yet will he live. And then he said, I have the power to lay my life down and take it up again. See, it wasn't just that Jesus did this crazy thing that nobody was ever done, therefore we have to listen to him, although that's partly true as well. It means that everything else he said about himself was true, because the craziest thing he said was, I have the power to lay my life down and take it up again. And this wasn't resuscitation, he was dead, buried, raised to life, never to die again. It means this, It's not just he did this crazy thing, therefore you have to listen to him. He conquered death. Remember Mark said last week in this story, and if you haven't heard this series before, you can pick it up as we go. Death was the curse that was ultimately on every human being. Doesn't matter how much money you have, doesn't matter how how far up the ladder you climbed in your life. Doesn't matter what family you came from, doesn't matter what your skin color is, doesn't matter how much education you have, everybody dies and it's the end and jesus passed through death to life which means wait a second the curse that every human being was under this human being was not he defeated death and sin and hell itself that's why we sing all these things no power of hell can ever pluck me from his hand. Why? Because he defeated it on the cross because death was the ultimate symbol. It is still the ultimate sign that, that things are not as they should be. And I say this whenever I'm at a funeral. It doesn't matter how old the person is, how well they died. Every one of us at a funeral says, no, this shouldn't be, right? There's something in us that, that pounds on the wall of death. We feel powerless against it because it claims every life. Yes, something in us says, you should not have the final word. And Jesus says, that doesn't. That's why later on in this passage, Paul says, death has been swallowed up in victory. The thing that was swallowing up every human life has itself been swallowed up in life. That's why the resurrection of Jesus, part one, that's why this is so significant. That's why it is the most dramatic, significant event in human history. It's the only thing that explains the movement of Jesus' followers all over the world. And think about this, not just from one part of the world, 
Jesus is worshipped in more languages than anyone. He's had more songs written about him than anyone in the world from every corner of the world. And every place that worships Jesus thinks they were the first. Because <laughs> it's not tied by ethnic boundaries or social class. Isn't there something mysterious about that? What on earth catalyzed this movement? If it wasn't this, what was it? But that's, that's part one. Paul goes on, part two. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can, you, how can some of you say there's no resurrection from the dead? Because some people were saying that's kind of ridiculous that people would rise from the dead. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised, and that's what we've been saying, and that's what, as a Christian, you believe. That, that was really what, what the first Christians believed. They say, what does it mean to be a Christian? That Jesus died, was buried, and raised to life, and therefore everything else he said is true. If Christ has not been raised, he says, our preaching is useless. There's no point talking. And so is your faith, by the way. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses of God. In other words, all of you, we are leaders of the church, we're liars because we're saying Jesus has been raised from the dead. If there is no resurrection from the dead, we're lying. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. If you are a Christian and you don't really believe the resurrection, you're the most pitiful person on earth. That's what Paul says. What is the point if there's no life after death? But Christ has indeed been raised. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does that mean? We're going to get to it. It's an agrarian culture, right? First fruits was the first crops. The stuff we're like, yes, it worked. <laughs> the rain and all that stuff, we're actually going to eat. The first fruits were the, were the most exciting and they were a sign that, that things had worked. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, right? Adam, the first person. And Mark said that, right? Every human being is born with the condition of sin and therefore death. So every one of us got that by nature of our biological birth. We are all, in a sense, children of Adam. And because of that, we have the curse of death on us. Since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. And this is why this is so significant. You see, in, in, in our journey of life, what we are told in the culture we live in is life or our existence is a journey from life to death. So we do everything we can to try to grasp life now through our, our, our jobs and our relationships and our financial situation and our health and our bodies and how we look and everything, we're grasping for life, right? This is what everyone, we don't mean biological life. The, the Greeks had two words for life. Remember, one is bias, the other one is zoe. Zoe was like this idea of vitality, right? And that is what we are about as a culture. I mean, if we have ever been about anything, it's about that. Life, living life to the fullest. So travel or do what you want to or move on from one relationship to another because you're trying to find life. It doesn't work for you, your, your personal happiness because you're waiting for death, right? You got to have a bucket list because you never know when it might come. So grasp life because death is coming. And eventually, and it'll, it'll sort of claim everyone, right? This is the journey of us. And that's why we hate death so much because it cuts life short. And we think this is the end. And now what does all that matter? And we mourn, especially when lives are cut short early. We think, no, they were robbed of life. This is the trajectory, right? Jesus, with his resurrection, flipped the script. 
See, our journey in life is not one of going from life to death, but from death to life. Right? From death to life. Remember Mark said when he was talking about sin and Jesus has this last supper with his disciples and he breaks the bread and he gets the wine and he says, of all the amazing things he did, he says to them, remember my death, right? And he had done miracles and he was, he was this incredible humanitarian. He had done everything, but then he, at the end he says, remember my death. Why did he say that? Because death was not his end. It was the beginning. Remember my death? It's the beginning. Because now it's not about grasping life while you can and waiting for death. We expect death. We wait for life. This is why it is the most important event in your story and my story. It has completely flipped the script. Everything that we long for and grasp for in life and thinking, this is as good as it gets. You only live once, right? Wrong. There's life to come. It's death now. Right? Jesus says, look, yeah, all this stuff I did in my life, but I still died. And the disciples thought that at the end, Jesus says, no, remember, it's the beginning from death to life. He says, it's, Paul says, Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Interesting now, right? Their language changed. They didn't call it death anymore. It's just sleeping. Remember when Jesus, a few times when he healed people who had died, and they said, oh, she's died. He says, no, no, he's not dead. He's just sleeping. They were like, what are you talking about? He was redefining the curse that is upon every human being. They're just sleeping. Paul says, it's the first fruits. The first fruits is Christ. But the first fruits of a harvest always say, there's more to come. And so he says, first fruits, Christ. Then, you. So in a sense, our lives, friends, are, are living between the two most significant events in history, Jesus' resurrection and yours, right? Those are the two most significant events in human history, Christ's resurrection and mine, but I live in the middle now. It's death now, but life to come. If we don't get this, We, we believe two lies if we don't get this. One is, I have to get everything I need to get now. Right? Because if it's life now and waiting for death, I got to get mine now. And that feeling marks so much of our striving in life. It's why when we lose a job or we don't get a promotion, we're not just disappointed, we're devastated. Because I need to be recognized or I need to know that I'm good enough to move on. Or when a relationship goes south or sickness comes to the body. Like we're, we're thinking, okay, the striving of saying, I, I need this now. And so sometimes we make decisions and we step over people to get what we think we need. We fight for our rights. It's why we get into arguments. Because I need to get my now, my personal happiness. Life for me is promised now because I don't know when death is coming. So I'm trying to grasp life and I'm waiting for death. It's a lie. And if we believe that lie, we would drive ourselves with this relentless pursuit of, did I get enough? Did I get enough? Is this enough? Maybe there's more. And so much of that striving for life now 
is what causes the chaos in our workplaces, in our relationships. It causes us to make foolish financial decisions because I need to get mine now because I never know what's going to come. You only live once, therefore I got to do this now. I can't delay my gratification. I can't delay this choice. What if something better never comes along? I better just take it now. That thought drives so much of the decisions we make that later on we're like, oh, I didn't see that coming. Because if, if it's only life now, then you gotta, you're right, you got to get yours. And too bad if I have to choose between you and me, sorry, it's my life over yours. Because death's coming, I don't know when. But the other lie that we will struggle with, if, if we don't really believe this, is when suffering comes our way, say, God, why, why have you left, you've forgotten about me? You haven't seen me. You're not hearing my prayers. You're not answering right because I'm expecting life now. I'm expecting everything to happen now. Even though we don't say it, we struggle. I struggle. Admit, I admit, I struggle with suffering. Saying, God, how come you're letting this go on so long? How, how come you're not answering? Because aren't we supposed to have life to the full now? Not, not yet. Yes, it breaks in, but it's not yet. Jesus' life and the fullness he came to gave us was the beginning of something, but it's death now. And what I mean is, oh, oh just think about the fact that any one of us are going to die one day. No, it, we still live under the curse of death in this world. Therefore, everything good will be incomplete. Right? Everything beautiful still has brokenness in it. And if we are not expecting that, we will be devastated by suffering, by hardship. Not only in our own lives, we'll be so intolerant of suffering in the lives of other people. Because we're like, you know, we want to walk alongside them. We're praying for them. We're like, God, why aren't you answering? Eventually, we're just annoyed with them. Why don't you just move on? Because I'm trying to, you know, be happy about life, and you're bringing me down with all this death stuff. Only if we realize, wait, I wasn't promised life to the full in this life. Yes, life to the full, but some of it's already, but most of it's not yet. In this life, Jesus says to the disciples, you will have. And if this life is all there is, then I'll be destroyed. Then I'll be angry at God. Then I'll be intolerant and incapable of walking alongside other people to being what the scriptures say, long-suffering. I will have no ability to do that. Why? Because I just keep waiting for life to happen now. Because this is all we have, right? No. Death now. Life to come. When we embrace this, we realize in this life there is suffering there are trials, there are struggles, there are things that are meant to be that are not yet. And yes, we grieve and we claw at the ground sometimes as Jesus says, Father, like, is there really no other way? Right? Jesus' acceptance of death now was not this, oh, well, okay, whatever. He begged God for another way. On the cross, he even said, God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, all he was experiencing was death. But the scriptures say he had faith to know that by the power of God, he would be raised from the dead. We get this, friends. It changes everything, right? Not instantly, but as it begins to permeate my heart, as it goes from here to here, that if it's really now, Jesus has flipped the script. It's not life now, waiting for death. Grasp for life, wait for death. I embrace death now. I know this life is not what it was meant to be. I know my body is wasting away. I know in my relationships, even in the best ones, there will be conflict, there will be strife. I know that even though I know what I'm supposed to do, I can't do it all the time. 
I failed. There's still sin and death. I'm still under that. But I know this is not the end. It's death now, life to come. Can I get an amen? All right. So I want to ask you this. In what area of my life do I need to flip the script? I don't know about you, but like, there's usually one or two areas in my life where I'm like, you know what? I, I, I've, been, I've been angry at God about, about this prolonged situation. Or I'm disappointed, devastated by setbacks, by becoming aware of my own personal failures. You know, that's a big one for me. Whenever I realize that I'm flawed, I'm just like, oh, I don't want more. And you say, wait a second, like, but, you know, this is, this is not life now. Embrace that. I get it. I'm not who I'm yet going to be. I'm a shell of my future self, right? And so for some of you, it's physical stuff that's going on in your body. Maybe it's just aging. Maybe it's something acute. Maybe it's something you've been trying to fight and you thought you conquered it and now it's back again and something in you just needs to say, okay, you know what? I am a shell of my future self. Something better is coming. I'm still going to pray for healing. I'm still going to do everything I can to look after this body while I have it, but I know it's death now. Life to come because Jesus flipped the script. For some of us, it's in a relationship. And we've been far too quick to give up on it because we keep expecting it to be better. We keep expecting it to be great. We keep expecting sin not to interfere with our relationship. Right? And we need to say, no, I have to embrace this. Not be okay with it. I want to fight it. I want things to be different, but I know perfection. Life is not mine in full yet. So I embrace that and I wait for I don't know what area it is for you. Maybe it's career, hopes, aspirations, financial things that never turned out the way you hoped they would. And there's something in you that believes you have to get it now because everything you're surrounded with is telling you exactly that. And you're living with people or you're related to people or you're living beside people who are getting it now. And you're like, man, how come I'm so far behind? How come this? It's like something in you. You're like, no, wait. This life is not my home. This is not as good as it gets. Heaven is not a place on earth. It's coming. Embrace death, life to come. You know what's ironic about this? Because I, I was thinking about this. I'm like, that's a hard word, I know, because I'm struggling with it myself. But I want you to think about this. If we actually embrace this, I just wrote down a few things. What would our lives be like if we actually flipped the script on this? I think we'd be less worried about our health and wealth. Don't you think? Because we'd know. I think we'd be more willing to sacrifice and serve others, right? Because I don't need to grasp for what's mine. I'm getting what's mine. I can look after you right now. I'd be more willing to take risks and less fear because you know what? I can throw everything that I've got in play because I don't need to grasp it today because I'm getting some later. What I have now is meant to be put in play. I'd be able to persevere, <laughs> important brackets, with humility, grace, and joy through hardship. Because we can persevere through hardship, but in the end, we're bitter, or we're angry, or we become, you know what, I'm just going to look after myself. How to, to persevere through hardships and still have grace and humility and joy. Not happiness, not happiness, 
We still may be clawing at the dirt. We still may be saying, God, it feels like you've abandoned me. But humility in my heart, I'm still going to trust you. Grace, because I know. And joy. And then I live with more hope. I want to ask you, isn't this what life is about? Isn't this living? When we really, when it really comes down, when it really uh, comes to, to bear on us, and we get it. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. We're going to take communion. When it really lands, friends, when my heart really believes that this is the most important event in human history and the next one is coming and I live between them, embrace death and wait for life, life begins to grow in the places that were dark and gray and dead and forgotten. It's the first fruits, just the beginning. And so when we worship Jesus as the resurrected one, in a few moments, we're going to take communion and celebrate his death. It's not a memorial service, friends, where we're remembering with sadness. We're saying, this is the beginning of my life. This is how life came to me. And then we're going to sing about the resurrection. Oh, God, I just pray that you would bless us to be able to get it. Mm -hmm. Amen. I just want to bless you with those three things. With patience to wait on God. With passion to live a life knowing that every fear is gone now. And with perseverance, to not just survive, but to thrive through even the darkest shadows of life. Did you receive that blessing? Yes. Amen.